Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, all. I hope this day finds all of you uh, well and uh, outside the COVID restraints and having a great day. Uh, it's We have a treat today, I believe. We have a man known as Angelino. Uh, good morning, Angelino. Good morning, Francie. We must have Greetings a bit of a... De- yes, I, I know you're calling from Japan and it's very exciting. We may have a little bit of a delay, so we may uh, have a little technical issues here, but we'll power on. So, uh, Angelino is a private investigator in Japan. He's a registered, I guess, American private investigator. How does that work, Angelino? Well, Australian, actually. Australia, okay. And, uh, well, basically, I'm, a, I'm an expat living in Japan. Um, but I suppose to give you a very quick um, history in, say, um, 15 seconds, if that's okay, um, I worked as a journalist in broadcasting for most of my career in uh, Australia and England, Europe, and then ended up in Japan doing that job about 30 years ago. And that's how I really came to be in Japan. And investigations, well, that's a slightly longer story, but I'll, um, I'll let you um, ask the questions and I'll answer them. No, please, uh, please offer what you have. I'm very interested in hearing um, how you got to living in Australia, being a private investigator, and ending up in Japan and becoming a private investigator. Well, so how does that work? I think the, uh, the prob- there's a natural progression in my mind. People always think, how do you get from being in broadcasting to private investigations? Um, it's not like I woke up one day and thought, oh, okay, I need to be an investigator. It wasn't quite like <laughs> that, but... Um, I think circumstances uh, just happened, and, and I mean, I'm sure everybody you've had on your show, even for yourself, I mean, I look, I did do a bit of Google stalking, uh, Francis. Google stalking? Find out, of course. <laughs> I think you and I have a couple of things in common. First of all, we're both in broadcasting, but even way before that, something that we both were into uh, a long time ago is Nancy Drew. And I grew up seeing Nancy Drew as one of my heroes as a child, uh, reading, reading the books. Right. Um, so we have that in common. And, and I think uh, it, it didn't make me at that stage of being a child and reading these books, wanting to um, be an investigator necessarily. But I think it was a sense of um, uh, justice, I think, and a sense of what's right and wrong and uh, speaking up. Um, in that in that kind of a way, and I think I've always been a bit like that. Um, honestly, I wanted to be an actor and a singer, and I trained professionally in both of those fields, Francie. <laughs> but my parents put the kibosh on anything like that um, with regard you know, to I, me wanting I, I to wa- do any of that sort of. Thing. <laughs> I uh, wanted it to was be a just, singer. You know, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Get That's a day okay. job. Um, figure out what your day job's <laughs> going to be. And then if you want to muck around with all that other stuff, prancing about on the stage, etc., was how my father put it. <laughs> um, oh, uh, you funny. can do that in your spare time. Yeah, so um, ultimately I went straight out of high school into a cadetship into journalism at a television network in Australia. Um, and there it was. My career was in radio and television, uh, having done that cadetship. And um, I 
I just loved the concept of finding out what needed to be found out and sharing that with an audience. And mm. so eventually, skip forward um, a bunch of years, um, and uh, I found myself thinking I've had enough of um, mainstream television and radio news. Um, I mean, this is like 30, 30 years later, mm-hmm. uh, 30 to 35 years later, where I'm thinking, oh, you know what? This is a young person's game. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not for me anymore. Uh, I'm an old school. I was an old school journo. I mean, you, you, you got a tip, you chased the story down, you found out what needed to be found out and you shared it with an audience. So investigative journalism played a fairly large role in my early career. And um, this is really how I ended up in Japan uh, doing that and becoming the, um, the head of uh, uh, broadcasting network in Japan uh, on cable in those days, cable radio. Mm and uh, FM radio, and uh, that led to me doing television and so on because I was obviously not Japanese, and we were a bit of a curiosity 30 years ago, and anyone who was uh, non-Japanese and had some sort of interesting face would would be great for television. Anyway, um, long story shorter, (laughs) Francie, um, I, I ended up being in Japan working as a journalist, managing a bunch of journalists and, and uh, reporting on just about everything. So in the 90s, pretty much um, all of the major world events, I've, I've covered them from Margaret Thatcher being ousted as Prime Minister of Britain to the terrorist attacks in, in England uh, hmm. by the IRA, uh, Irish Republican Army. And then fast forward to my time in Japan the attacks on America. I was the first broadcaster in Japan to go live to air with news of the attacks on America. And um, hmm. this is what really floated my boat, the, the, not just from the point of view of being exciting, uh, excited about discovering a story and sharing it with an audience, but uh, the concept of being able to let people know what was going on around them uh, so they could make a judgment about how they felt about the world that they lived in. I guess that's, that was the altruistic uh, background to why I did what I was doing. Uh, but ultimately, um, I became ill and ended up with renal failure, uh, kidney failure, mm. uh, back in Australia and on dialysis. Wow. Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a game changer. It's a life changer, isn't it? It is a life changer. Wow. So, what part of Australia? Perth, Western Australia, and it, uh, okay. it was where I basically grew up. Okay. Um, but uh, that in itself is a different story again. I was born in Holland, in Amsterdam, uh, to uh, a Dutch mother and Italian father, hence the name Angelino. Um, mm. And, you know, we immigrated to Australia uh, when I was five. So, I grew up in Perth, Western Australia. I'm a beach bum, really, at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've moved from the hills or mountains on one side of Tokyo. Uh, my wife and I and our plethora of pets moved out to the coast uh, on the other side of Tokyo on the Chiba Peninsula um, just last summer, so the end of or middle of September last year, uh, because we both realized that we could be working at home and doing what we're doing and... Um, mm and uh, running things from wherever we, we happen to be. 
So I'm still that um, that beach bum kid from Western Australia. Uh, but having become ill, uh, Francie, which was a fairly serious uh, matter, I, I guess um, I was lucky to have been home on Christmas vacation, uh, something I hadn't been doing very regularly. But that year it was, um, I don't know, I, I guess there, there's something in the universe uh, that really pointed me into the direction of going home that year for Christmas and I ended up collapsing on my sister's front lawn um, in the new year and ended up in hospital and uh, sorry mate, you've got renal failure. Um, and I remember the first words out of my mouth were, I'm, I can't afford to have renal failure. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I can't afford to have renal failure. But anyway, I'm still here and, um, you know, three and a half years of dialysis, uh, um, I advertised for a kidney in the newspaper, um, mm. which isn't really the done thing uh, even now, I don't think. But um, I ended up uh, getting um, an offer. We went through a really? range of testing and whatnot and um, <laughs> um, didn't work out in the end because we ended up doing an interview like the one we're doing right now. Um, and somebody sent a transcript of that to the head of the transplant team in Sydney at the hospital at the time, and, uh, well, that was the end of that. They oh, my goodness. It was like literally about two or three weeks before the actual date of the operation, and uh, um, it was a, a, a totally altruistic uh, offer from a person who was 50 at the time, and she was a nurse. She'd donated eggs in the past and was... Uh, had a son that was a doctor and so on and so forth. And so uh, we were very satisfied that it would, you know, there was nothing untoward here. And um, it really was uh, somebody that I'd got to know through this whole process. But I didn't work out in the end. And uh, I had to wait for a, a regular, on the regular list for um, uh, something. And I ended up getting getting a kidney. And, uh, um, well, I, I ended up moving back to uh, back to Japan about four years ago. But uh, in the interim, I'd gone back to uni to do a master's degree in communications. Um, mm -hmm. I never formally, formally had any education, I suppose, because uh, in those days, um, meaning in the, um, in the 80s, you, you came out of high school and if you wanted to be a radio or television journalist, you got a job at a radio or TV station and um, you kind of worked your way up. Uh, there was only a degree level course at university in those days for newspaper journalists. And uh, I thought I had a very pretty face for radio, so I wanted to be a radio journalist <laughs> at the time. Well, since you mentioned that, Angelino, could you, I, I want our listeners to get a, a picture of you. Could you describe yourself to our listeners? Because I think you're quite oh, an, yeah. an anomaly in Japan. Yeah, uh, look, I remember being here 30 years ago, and I really was very fresh-faced. Uh, I was 26, I think, and, uh, um, you know, uh, you would walk down the street and you'd be mobbed by people wanting to touch your skin and, and uh, have photographs with you. And, um, yeah, um, but these days I don't need to worry about exactly um, how I look, and I'm much older now. I'm not as pretty as I used to be and um, probably not as thin as I used to be either, but um, I'm not doing too badly. I've grown a beard because I no longer work on uh, on television. I get to make my own rules in that area, Francie, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, I run the company, so I do what I want. So I have a, what some would call an epic beard. Um, I... 
I think that's probably the best way to describe me, uh, I guess. Well, I'm looking at your photograph, Angelino, and you have a ginger-colored beard, and it looks like it goes down to the middle of your chest. Is that about right? Um, Well, yes, I've just trimmed my beard because I just cannot find anybody here to do my beard any justice, and I don't want anyone to touch it. Um, A quick (laughs) aside, I'm still doing uh, broadcasting under the um, banner of The Bearded Blogger, so vlog, okay. uh, vlog, vlogs and podcasts, that kind of thing. I've really just started doing that again uh, in the last three or four months, which I'll get to a bit later. But um, yes, um, I think the beard was about 26 centimetres long, uh, mm. just below my nipples. Am I allowed to say that on, on this program? You can, you can say anything you want, Angelino. <laughs> yes, so just below my, uh, that area. Uh, so, yes, it was quite long, and I've taken probably about, um, I don't know, uh, maybe five centimetres off that, so uh, mm-hmm. not too much. It's still big and uh, fairly bushy, uh, but it's a novelty here. And, um, you know, one of the fun things I do, especially around the end of the year, is, is you're, you're lining up in the supermarket to get your goods, and there's lots of kids around usually, and they all look at you. They're gawping at you because you're an anomaly. Um, yes. Surrounded by Japanese people, and then there's this tall gaijin uh, foreigner who looks different and then on top of that looks different to most other foreigners that are here as well yeah <laughs> and, and you uh, have and you and have I look quite down a, at these kids i was i was just going to say and you have quite a magnificent mustache as well thank you very much it's uh <laughs> it's a work in progress but um, anyway with the kids you know you look down and you go ho 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 and then they like <laughs> open, their eyes get real wide you know and it's like, then I can't figure it out. And, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and, uh, I so speak Santa Claus with these days, and I kind of say to them, "I'm not him." <laughs> no, no, I'm not him, but I know him. So, oh, have no. you been a good boy? Have you been a good girl? Oh my goodness! <laughs> and so it goes, and um, that usually creates a, a bit of interest. And I often do get dressed up uh, in a Christmassy kind of. Uh, manner at that time of year and um, go out to the shopping centres and, and, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy to take photographs with people and that sort of, <laughs> even now that's kind of um, oh. a bit of interest. But um, um, I think having gone through the uh, illness I mentioned earlier, um, this is an ongoing thing. I'm on Im- immunosuppressant drugs uh, to mm. maintain the kidney. It's about 15 years now that I've had the kidney transplant and uh, um, I uh, struggle a little bit with diabetes as a result of one of my steroids that helps protect uh, the kidney. Mm. So mm-hmm. uh, that's now, uh, again, under, under control after having been a little bit difficult to control, especially with levels of stress. And um, obviously, there's a certain percentage of my own responsibility. I can't really blame somebody else, Francie, when, you know, you want to, you want to have or, or have... Uh, some sweet food, which you do at festive times and whatnot, but um, uh, partly the reason I moved from uh, the busier side of Tokyo out, uh, we're about maybe an hour uh, from Tokyo, across the other side of the bay onto the Chiba Peninsula and out to the ocean where it's real quiet. It's, um, it's a beautiful place and um, a peaceful kind of a life, but this would never have been possible doing the kind of business that I'm doing here um, had... Um, 
I suppose, had had the the desperation of trying to keep things going throughout this coronavirus, the COVID-19 situation not eventuated. So that's a positive to have come out of it. Um, I guess uh, to to backtrack a little bit and get off the broadcasting thing, I I suppose, um, I came to a point after having finished my master's degree where I thought, well, okay, what am I going to do? My days in Japan are obviously over and um, I hadn't met my current wife at that time, but I, I eventually did, so that's what brought me back to Japan. But prior to that, in Australia, in Perth, I had um, decided, all right, I'm not get doing journalism anymore. I, I've worked, I think, Channel 10, the 10 network, which is tied up with CBS in America, was the last network that I worked for, and I just thought, oh, I don't know, I'm tired of a 20-year-old trying to tell me how to write news and, you know, in little packages of what... 30 seconds, 50 seconds, whatever, um, that old story. And um, I became a grumpy old man. So um, I just thought, okay. well, I'm going to do what I want to do and I need to switch to something else. And I thought, what is the closest thing I can find to what I've been doing all these years? And that is finding out the facts and being able to share them with an audience. The audience is these days private, Francie, as you will well know uh, right. from your own experiences and uh, I'm still finding out and discovering the facts that need to be brought to light. And the reason for that is, and what's passionate for me about this kind of work is, I want to help somebody, whether it's a person or a company or a country. I'll say that again. A person, a company, <laughs> or a country, or right. an NGO, or any, any kind of client who needs to make a decision about their future about their best futures going forward, they need people like us to find out what needs to be found out and to share it with them. It's just not being broadcast publicly. You're absolutely right, Angelino. And and so it brings me to how did you transition from media to being a private investigator? How does that work in Japan? Well, oh, I okay, were... started off in Australia, so going back to um, having finished the master's degree in communications, film and video was the major there, um, and so I, it gives me an opportunity to continue to use those skills, i.e. video production skills and, and photographic skills, in the current work that I do now as well. Uh, mm. Obviously, it wouldn't be too much of a leap to think, okay, video skills, surveillance, managing surveillance teams, photographic skills, um, secret photography, where... Uh, you're you're um, trying to look at a target and see uh, what they're up to and collect evidence, so all that kind of thing. And then there's the forensic side of it as well, where um, you're trying to figure out who's speaking on this particular recording and, and uh, you know, your discovery of what's going on in that recording, whether it's video or audio, um, may end up being really important, um, and then you're called as, a, as an expert witness to um, to share what you have with a, in a court proceeding, for example. But uh, the skip from media over to private investigations uh, started off with um, some more study, actually, and I wanted to have the proper skill set and change the, the mindset from um, fishing out a story in terms of news and documentary and, and that kind of thing to discovering facts. So it's not about necessarily finding the truth. Uh, and I, I don't use the word truth very often anymore. It's, it's really more because those, those are movable goalposts depending on who you talk to and uh, the, the, the perspective of 
every single human being uh, on what is truth is a completely different conversation every time you have it. So uh, facts, what are the facts here? And then uh, I got some training in Australia, government, uh, government qualified training so that I would be eligible to apply for investigation jobs, whether it be within government or in the private sector. And from there, I then decided to um, set up my own private investigations business. Um, and mainly because at the time, uh, we're going back about six years now, um, I suppose, seven years maybe, um, where in Australia at that time, it was pretty hard to get a job. So um, I was still doing uh, broadcasting work through my own, well, not broadcasting necessarily, media production work, I suppose, would be the best way to say it. And that is to, mm-hmm. uh, to say that I, I'd uh, run a production business where I would uh, go out and shoot stuff or have people do that for me. Then I would manage ed- editors and we would produce regular commercial production uh, house. And then on the side, I started doing these investigation jobs. And then slowly the pendulum would swing and um, we moved to Japan and I transplanted both of those businesses directly uh, to where we were living in um, near, just on the other side of Tokyo in Saitama Prefecture. Uh, where a lot of the Japanese green tea comes from. It's, it's mm, the town, mm-hmm. the city is Sayama. Sayama City is famous for green tea. And uh, that's where, at home, I started um, uh, doing a bit of work. And uh, my mother-in-law had a, a real estate business, so she had offices. And then I started sharing the offices. Then we started hiring people, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew. <laughs> and then we got hit with coronavirus, and everything shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And... <laughs> And here you are. Um, let all the staff go, and we asked everybody to, uh, set, if they wanted to continue with us, they'd need to set up their own, um, what do we call that, like a sole proprietorship, and we would hire them back as and when we needed, uh, we needed them, and that's how we operate now. Um, so while we still have an office in Tokyo, um, we don't use it. We, we simply um, have come to an arrangement where it's, I guess it's a virtual office, I suppose, and if we really need to go to an office to meet somewhere, uh, then that's what we do. But um, mostly everybody's located in their own locations. Um, and I now don't do much media production because with COVID-19, uh, that kind of died. I mean, nothing... And we can't go out and do shoots for example, if we wanted to do a commercial for somebody or um, a short film or whatever it was, can't do that anymore. So um, investigation work can be done on desktop. And then if it's safe enough to go to a location, we can undertake location-based investigations as well. And so that's become the focus, really, of what I'm doing here now. Um, I'm looking for facts uh, on behalf of a client. I'm hopefully then sharing those facts, Francie, to a point where the client can make the best decision going forward. Let me back up for a second, Angelino, um, to Australia. What are the requirements for to become a, a private investigator in Australia? Is it, is it based on the city you're in or is it the country? How does that work? It's based on the state you're in, but most states of Australia have um, uh, very similar rules. So, first of all, the licensing of private investigators is governed by the police in most states of... Well, in all states of Australia now, I think that is the case. So, um, through the police departments in each state or territory, of which there are a total of seven, 
um, you uh, you must be licensed and uh, you, you have to sit an exam. So in Western Australia, which is the one I'm uh, registered in, um, I can't speak to the others very specifically because I, I don't hold licenses in those states. But in Western Australia, uh, you have to do an approved course of study, uh, which is a, um, a certain number of hours uh, accredited course in uh, investigation work. And uh, once you've got that certificate, you're then eligible to sit an exam which basically goes over the, uh, it's a legal, it's, it's kind of like a legal exam and it's a multiple choice exam. It's not easy. You need to be aware of the legislation surrounding the industry uh, and that governs the work of investigators in Western Australia. Once you have got that down, uh, it's a pass-fail scenario. So you either get them correct or you don't get them correct and you've got to come back two weeks later and try again. So um, you do that exam and that's administered by the police department. Um, once you pass that exam and you have the certificate of, uh, of the original education leading up to that exam, that's two steps, you then can apply to have a license and that needs to be renewed on a regular basis. So once you've got a license as a private investigator, that's administered by the police department. You also must uh, be licensed or registered as a business owner in order to hire private investigators. Otherwise, you're only allowed to work for yourself. Uh, you may work for another company or another private investigator if they hold this business license to run a business. So it's really strict. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And we don't, as you're probably aware, in Australia, like uh, uh, England, you're not allowed to carry a, a, a firearm of any kind unless you're working in, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, certain types of security jobs, maybe if you're handling um, you know, money and that kind of thing. But mostly regular people can't get a license to carry a firearm like you can in the States. So uh, this, this image, this old-fashioned image of the hard-boiled PI, you know, with the, you know, <laughs> playing, cops and, playing cops and robbers from our point of view... <laughs> simply because we don't have that history in Australia. Um, you're, a private investigator is somebody who has to be um, obviously qualified to do the job, but also able to do the job from the point of view of if you're hired by a, an accounting firm, you've got to have some accounting background in addition to the private investigator licence so you can be doing fraud investigations and that kind of thing. Um, uh, interestingly, I do quite a bit of work on behalf of... Um, legal firms all over the world, but based in Japan. And I also stage manage investigations. I suppose case manage is the best, best way to put it. Other cases around Asia as well. And they are so varied. But getting to the, uh, the final uh, point of your question, in Australia, you must have a license administered by the police department. It's extremely strict and it's not easy to maintain it because uh, you have to... Um, uh, maintain the license on, a, I think it's every two to three years uh, basis. Um, and I've given up the second part of that, which is really the most difficult part, and that is um, I'm now no longer running a business in Australia, although I do manage investigations in Australia through my office here in Japan. Uh, and that's simply because I'm physically not in Australia able to maintain the uh, owning a private investigations business license. But as a private investigator, I still maintain that license through the West Australian Police. 
Okay. Very interesting, Angelino. This is a really good time to take a, a quick break and let our sponsors have a little word. So we'll be right back with Angelino. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is known only by Angelino, uh, which is a an interesting name to have somebody living in Japan. So Angelino, uh, I'm interested in knowing how you navigated from being a private investigator in Australia to being in Japan and becoming a private investigator there. How does that work? Okay, well look, the thing is that uh, about four years ago we moved back to, uh, back to Japan 
my wife is Japanese, and uh, she had been doing a uh, university degree in Australia um, in accounting, uh, management, uh, Bachelor of Business majoring in accounting, and uh, we were considering what to do next. Um, my wife is a bit younger than I am, so uh, I've already had a kind of career, I thought, and I, and I said to her, well, I, we're happy to go anywhere, happy to do whatever you want. Um, and uh, I guess that's why she married me. But uh, she was very focused, and we actually considered going to the States. Uh, she had an opportunity to, because um, she had studied in America before coming to Australia. So we thought, oh, well, maybe we'd go, how about the green card? What, what can I do? Oh, damn, I can only work 20 hours a week. Well... And then I started thinking about it, you know, how to do businesses online and so on and so forth, and what could I actually do if we ended up in the States. Um, then uh, we were kind of thinking what to do, and Donald Trump became president, so that was the end of that, and we thought, oh, it's pretty hard now to get to make that move and to, to get a gig over there, I suppose, for both of us. So um, there was some personal uh, issues going on with Sari, my wife's family, in uh, Japan, and uh, her father, uh, stepfather, had some cancer issues, and uh, mum called us up and said, look, is there any chance I could ask you to come back and give us a hand? Um, so that the, the family business was in real estate and um, construction and some of that kind of thing. Um, so we did that uh, and thought, all right, well, we'll just go back for a little while and see how it goes. And as I mentioned earlier, I ended up transplanting my media production entity and the investigations business to Japan and sort of merging it a little bit with the uh, uh, mother-in-law's uh, company, run separately but under the same roof. And that's completely separated out now and I, I'm doing my own thing. But um, that's what brought us to Japan. And so coming to Japan, thinking about working in investigations, I started looking into what the requirements were, um, different jurisdiction, different country, different rules. Uh, I discovered that there was basically no training for private investigators in Japan, uh, and that remains uh, still a, a big problem. Um, there are companies that are offering uh, investigations training to people who are happy to pay for it, and there are lots of investigators in Japan uh, 99% of the work here is infidelity cases and uh, there's a serious issue with trust, I think, in relationships in this country, or it, so it seems, because majority of work here is what I've just mentioned, infidelity cases. So there's no formal training for investigators required here. Um, you don't need a license to become a private investigator in this country, but I... I understand, I don't know if it's mandatory, but certainly we are encouraged to register. Um, yes, if you're running a business, you need to register with the police department. Uh, it's under the Bureau of Safety or something like that, which I can't really remember the exact translation in English, but um, it's, it's under the Safety Bureau, which oversees the police in, in uh, the National Police Agency in Japan. And you need to be registered in your local uh, area under the local police department and they have a person or persons who manage that. So what you're basically doing is you register your business, uh, your entity through the tax office as a legal business or trading entity, then that entity needs to be registered with the police 
uh, just in case there's a complaint. And so um, if there is a complaint, then obviously they've got some way of following it up. But really, it's just a matter of ticking boxes um, so that somebody's ultimately responsible for what you're doing. Um, that's pretty much the shape of how it is here. While you were speaking, I was just uh, uh, looking and discovered that you are a member of Council of International Investigators, of course, which I am also. Um, are you also a member of World Association of, of Investigators as well? The World Association of Detectives, yes, I am. Yeah. Uh, oh, in fact, detectives, that's, uh, right. Yes, uh, I'm a member of both, and um, I, the reason for that is that, uh, well, initially I met somebody who encouraged me to join CII, uh, the Council of International Investigators, and I thought, well, I think that's probably a good idea. And um, then eventually I joined uh, WAD, the World Association of Detectives, as well. Mm-hmm. It's really terrific because um, I feel a little bit isolated sometimes, and I guess there's quite a few um, investigators who might do in certain parts of the world uh, because you're kind of flying on your own broomstick, so to speak, and uh, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of company out there. Um, in Japan, I'm probably, as far as I know, I'm the only authorized or I suppose legally registered uh, with the police department, as I've just mentioned, uh, investigator who is non-Japanese and Western. There are a couple of other Asian uh, non-Japanese investigators working here uh, from various parts of Asia, but I'm the only uh, person like me, I suppose, when, when, when we look at well, Western, Western person. Uh, I speak Japanese, although I don't read the Chinese characters that are in, in the Japanese language. I can read and write the first two alphabets uh, known as hiragana and katakana, katakana being for foreign words in Japanese and hiragana, which is the very basic, simple form of uh, uh, Japanese. So, uh, yes, it's, um, it, it's important for me to, to have connections like the, the council um, and the uh, WAD as well, because it's a it's a it's really a collegiate uh, group of people that have uh, same mindset in terms of um, the way we do work, but uh, obviously there are differences in how we can conduct that work given local uh, regulations here. You have so much freedom in America to uh, um, to really access information for example, that we don't uh, have here anymore. Uh, what are I'm the differences? Told 30 or, yeah, I'm told 30 years ago here that, that you could access uh, public records quite easily, but it's, it's almost impossible now. So, so what do you do, Angelino? How do you, do you operate your business if you can't access information? Okay, this is interesting. Um, information is available. Uh, but uh, you have to purchase it. So, for example, if you wanted to do a business investigation, a background on a business, for example, let's say an American company wanted to do uh, business with a Japanese company, then you have to run some due diligence inquiries to make sure that uh, both sides of that coin are squeaky clean to the point where it's acceptable to both parties to do business with each other. So um, there are there are places to get information which are... Uh, offered by the government, but you can't get it for free. Uh, Then there's other bits of information, for example. I mean, we're all aware of the credit reporting agencies, right? You have that in the States as well. Yes. So uh, we have something similar here where, um, excuse me, 
if I wanted to find out about a particular company, um, I would contact whatever that sort of private uh, credit reporting agency lookalike company. I would contact them, I would pay a membership and I'd be able to get balance sheets, uh, the latest company report and all that kind of stuff available to me, which then goes into an investigative report. Um, accessing that information isn't for everybody. Uh, you have to, um, it, it's really quite difficult to get an account with such companies, obviously, because they're, they're dealing with private information. On the other hand, if you're a business in Japan or a company and you don't offer information about your company to that organization, um, then you're not regarded as a, a team player, shall we say. And if you're not on their list, Meaning if I wanted to inquire about, let's say, ABC Japanese company um, and they're not on the list, then it kind of means that the company isn't the sort of company you would want to be doing business with. So Interesting. there's a bit of peer pressure. <laughs> um, if you're running a business of any kind in Japan, you should be able to uh, find out about that business by uh, paying for a report a financial report and so on, and uh, details of whether that per the, the owner of that company, whether they've had any, um, uh, whether they've been bankrupt in the past, for example, if there's any criminal proceedings that uh, are, are worth knowing about, what the latest balance sheets look like, and so on and so forth. That can be purchased, and it's not cheap. And therefore, when we get asked to do due diligence cases, um, or we get asked to look into company directors and so on because they've been asked to join, say, the board of an, a, a company in America, whatever. Um, I keep referring to America, A, because you're there, Francie, and B, uh, because most of my clients are in the States, as it happens. Um, the second largest area would be Europe, uh, and third would be other parts of Asia. But um, access to public information that you guys can get hold of by simply getting to the local, going to your local city hall or municipality. We can't do that here. It's just impossible because of the privacy laws and they keep getting tighter and tighter. So in order to answer your question, how do we do the job? That comes down to uh, communication, I suppose, um, where you guys might be able to go to an instrumentality and get a document that is quite legal for you to get um, we can't get that same document here. We'd have to have um, a court case that's pending or about to be in progress for a lawyer in Japan to be able to go to that city municipality and to acquire that document. However, if that lawyer is found to be lying or that there is no court case, then there's trouble and that person can be disbarred. So it's, it's difficult to do that. So then... The next so thing was I, I thought, well, okay, go ahead. Question, Angelino. Uh, so uh, is this, um, I'm assuming this is a database that you get access from, from the credit reporting agencies? Yes, that, it's a database. So the, ba basically, private databases, uh, the, the kind of credit reporting type agency uh, and other private companies have over many, many years collected information. So, for example, court... Um, if I wanted to get history of, of somebody or their, or their company looking at court records, I can't go through court records because that's mm -hmm. not open to the public anymore. I see. That's shut down many years ago. Uh, however, there are private companies who used to send people to the courts almost daily to collect information, and that has been built up into a database, which they now sell. 
So okay. um, we are that, able is, to. Is that a subscription that you have to be vetted before you can uh, access the information? Yeah, in some cases that's the case. In other cases, I can just uh, ring up and say, right, this is who we are, this is what we want, and they'll, uh, they'll give us the information for a fee. And what about how current is the information if, if that isn't available in the courts? Um, so usually when you're doing a due diligence, you'll look at who, who the owner of a particular company. You have to look at what their assets they have if, if that information is basically available. And then you look at the available court records to see if that person comes up as having been uh, say a politically exposed person or whether they've been uh, involved in, in uh, strange, I uh, don't know how to describe it really, strange groups like, uh, well, if there's any Yakuza connections, for example, uh, mafia connections, or if there's any um, involvement in strange religious groups, um, for example, uh, I don't know, Aum Shinrikyo, for example, who, who perpetrated the attack on the Tokyo subways in 1995, they still are in existence, although their lead is gone. But um, uh, associations with those sorts of uh, um, groups that are not seen to be very um, acceptable. So that information is on a database that's kept by private companies, and we can access that if we pay, the, you know, pay what they want. Um, I don't, I don't find myself having to do that very often because there's. Um, there's other ways to check information. For example, if I wanted to find out um, who owns a particular property, there's two ways of doing it. Uh, one is obviously through my mother-in-law's property agency to uh, get access to the database through the agency um, and find out some very basic information. But any, any person off the street can go to the, um, a particular government agency um, which is called the homukyoku, homukyoku in, in Japanese, and I just forget what that is in, in English, but it's something like the uh, uh, Legal Affairs, I think it's Legal Affairs Bureau, Bureau of Legal Affairs in Japan, and you can uh, just fill out a form, I need information on this property, uh, and uh, they'll give you the ownership details for a, short, a, a small fee, 10 bucks or something like that. So that can be uh, the, a starting point to an investigation, uh, but how deep you're able to go into that is a question mark. But then, Francie, I have to say that um, although we do uh, background checks on individuals um, and and companies, um, which might run, I don't know, $1,000 US, maybe $2,000, depending on whether it's an individual or company. And it can be a bit more pricey than that, but those are very basic starting points, I would think. Um, a lot of the work that we're doing is, is not to do with due diligence at all. Um, our bread and butter work, I have to say, is doing insurance company work. Um, and of that, uh, most of that is death investigations. So you t are, you, what, are you talking about fraud or, or uh, you're not talking about workers' no, compensation? No, I think in terms of insurance company work, we... Uh, our, my, our bread and butter work pretty much is um, from insurance companies all over the world that have policies on Japanese nationals that have lived abroad maybe and taken out a life insurance policy or foreign uh, nationals who come to live in Japan 
who may also have uh, life insurance policies and uh, who die here, for example. So we have to um, um, look at uh, the nature of the death and confirm, um, basically confirm the details that have been brought forward by the insurance company before they pay out on a life insurance policy. Um, this is the day, kind of weekly, we have work like this, and it's not just in Japan. I've got cases in Korea and Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, all at the moment. Um, and uh, uh, we've got a case in Malaysia, uh, which is an insurance case, but the person had a stroke and therefore is constantly being given um, support from uh, an insurance company for her treatment. So she hasn't died necessarily but we couldn't find her in the beginning so it was a search a missing persons case you know and then we eventually found her and um and uh that's fresh in my mind at the moment because we're getting her to sign some uh, documents for the coming year uh, so that the support from the insurance company will continue but most of the cases are death investigation cases um and that they're, they're very interesting you're dealing with people so and you're dealing with a story. Every person's got their own story, Francie, and it's fascinating. Right. I know right. it sounds a bit boring maybe to, to listeners uh, who, who think, oh. But, I mean, it's not unheard of that somebody, um, somebody will, uh, you know, make it, make it up. So, yes, it is a kind of fraud investigation, isn't it? But uh, I've never yet come across a case where someone's made a false claim and, you know, both parties have received the money and living on a beach in Jamaica. It just hasn't happened yet in my, in my sphere. Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. What is your most memorable story? I can't even say that. Memorable story that you remember um, doing this work? Hmm. That's a really hard question. I mean, the cases are so varied. And uh, um, I think... Um, I've had cases where I've, I've uh, um, look, a lot of the times I'll get phone calls from American ex-servicemen who have had difficulties in their relationships with um, their partners who may be Japanese and, and the mother or wife has uh, taken off with the children back to Japan. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a really sad scenario because the Japanese law does not help the men in these circumstances. And that's not to say that all men uh, in the cases are terrible, but uh, um, I think one case that sticks out in my mind was uh, a really nice young man from New York who had been in the services and was posted to Japan some years ago. Um, his mother, so the grandmother, was pleading with me to try to find the, the grandchildren and so on and so forth. And um, I've developed a really good relationship with uh, the various um, American armed services bases around here. Um, so, you know, NCIS, um, if it's the Navy or uh, the Office of Special Investigations, if it's the Air Force, for example. And ex-servicemen will call me or their families and they want to find out where their children are. And I mean, look, it's heart-wrenching stuff because you're dealing with, you're dealing with family scenarios. Um, I guess... The uh, most interesting one was that um, I found that the, the, the chap had been in trouble even whilst he was serving and had done time in Japan in prison for various things. And um, obviously, I dropped the case like a hot potato and, and uh, we have to look really? at the protection of... 
yeah, we have to look at the... If I get caught giving information to uh, a client that then leads to something uh, illegal or untoward happening to somebody in Japan, I'd be locked up. And um, it was it was a horrible, heart-wrenching case because I really felt for the guy. But uh, there was a history there that I was made aware of. And uh, um, obviously, America has pretty strong privacy laws too, and especially yeah. in the military. So I wasn't able to get specific details. But um, it was suggested to me that I should look in certain places for information, which I did. And eventually, through the Japanese authorities, I found out that this chap had been locked up in, in Japan for three years prior to being sent mm. back home. Um, so we weren't able to proceed at all. And uh, I felt very bad for him. But I actually did find the mother and the children. Um, but I obviously couldn't share that information uh, at that time. And did you tell him? Probably did, did, you tell, did you tell him uh, why you weren't going to go forward with the case? Yes, of course. Well, the client wasn't, I don't know, it's very strange. The guy, the guy was in his 40s, and yet he, he wasn't a very strong, seemed not to have been a strong person. His mother was the strong one and, and, I, and, and was my ultimate client, really. Um, so the grandmother, and I explained to her in no uncertain terms that, um, you know, I was a bit annoyed that, that, that they hadn't been honest with me, really, from the get-go. Probably they knew I wouldn't have taken the case. But anyway, I explained very clearly that I would lose my license to work in Japan um, if I was to pursue this any further. And I did not tell them I knew where the children and the mother was. Um, I just said, I'm sorry, I can't pursue this any further. I've found this much out about um, your son's previous um, history. And uh, this is too dangerous for me. Um, and just one point of interest I should mention before it's time to wrap up, I guess, is, um, is that the Japanese investigations industry has not really had a very good name. And that's because the Yakuza, the mafia in Japan, used the pub private investigations industry as a front for conducting nefarious um, activities for quite some years, which is why the police uh, and the government are now extremely strict on uh, what we do here uh, and how we do it. So uh, Interesting. It's, um, it's not easy. Well, Angelina, we have to wrap up. <clears throat> this is fascinating talking to you. I'm hoping to meet you in person one day, maybe at a conference, but we have to close I the show. So. And thank you so much for being on today. It's fascinating. And for the rest My of pleasure. you. Thank you. And for the rest of you, it's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. PIs Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. Brought to you by... 